Everyone runs away from pain, dodging the truth it comes with. But you are done with limiting your greatness in the shackles of fear. You see fuel in the fire. You taste ripe fruit in real answers. You move to the drums with wild expression. Enter From Pain to Gain, the podcast about identifying pain so you can ultimately gain health and wealth. Because without identifying a mountain, how can you climb it? Here's your host, Ivan Alpha. Welcome back to From Pain to Gain. We have a very specific, painful topic today, but it's the title of the show, so we don't shy away from this stuff. Abortion, why both parties have it wrong. We're talking about a real gnashing of teeth issue. You know, people are really struggling with this. So first of all, let's pause and grieve with those folks that struggle with this decision day to day. All right, so there's a lot of different parental scenarios that play out of this sensitive issue. I haven't had to deal with it myself, but uh, we're going to add a lot of perspective to it. And we're also going to, towards the end of this intro, explain what our goal of this is. Um, You know, the pain could be from just not even knowing where money will come from to feed their children. You know, if you're making minimum wage, how is that even feasible? I know even people that make over 80 grand a year that struggle to, you know, put uh, food on the table because, you know, they've maybe over leveraged themselves or uh, something like that. But think about the other side of it too, right? You're working at McDonald's, you're making seven fifty an hour. How are you going to put uh, food in your own mouth, much less your own child? Um, so, and I would make a note just, there's an interesting connection between that and hope, um, our belief in having hope, and our belief in being despairing. So, um, so that's an interesting dynamic that I think is worth noting. Despair yeah. and hope, yeah. Yeah, just really taking a deep dive into that, and you know, we're we're just trying to take a deep dive into understanding and just talking about the issue. We don't have it all figured out, but what we see is it's something everybody wants to actively avoid talking about this difficult conversation. So the the point of this entire channel is to talk about difficult conversations. So it's not so, you know, taboo, like, oh, stay away from that. Because staying away from stuff like this is exactly the type of way that'll keep you in pain and in a cycle of pain. What about the specific parties, you know? why both parties have it wrong. Uh, Well, the right, you know, the political right, they're too focused on the birth of the child and not much past the birth. Without considering a variety of the other socioeconomic pressures or the fact that they can do an abortion without government support. So that's the right side. Uh, Jason, did you have any thoughts on that before I go on to the left? Yeah, I would uh, simply uh, bring out a quote from um, or just a passage from Alistair McIntyre, which he argues that a state that outlaws abortion, but then fails to provide basic medical and maternity care as well as economic provisions, exemplifies the same individualistic ethos centered on eliminating negative prohibitions, but not aimed at achieving the common good. And so um, we need to think about the life of a child from conception to them becoming a young adult 
and to focus on one part of that while neglecting all the others um, is to have an ethic that is incomplete. And so that would be uh, one layer that I would add to that. Um, and then the other layer would be um, the realization that, um, you know, there's some uh, comparisons between other countries where abortion is illegal and the abortion rates are at a similar level as they are in America. And so abortions can still happen whether they're legal or illegal. If I care about the life of the child, I should care that those children are are living and flourishing, um, not whether the law is against or for it. So, um, so what can we do to actually save those children? And perhaps from the rights uh, perspective, we could actually be doing things that could eliminate or uh, diminish the number of abortions, even if it were in a society where it is legal. And so that would be a few layers to add to the uh, piece of the pie. Yeah. And that was, you know, how this entire topic came about, by the way, was I was absolutely flabbergasted at the Supreme Court decision, uh, even when it was not decided, right? We got that uh, leak ahead of time earlier this year, which sparked in me a fire of like, yo, y'all are just throwing out the kitchen sink and not giving a crap about anybody's perspective on this, just kind of forcing people into a perspective. And I had some good group conversations. Uh, Jason, you were a part of uh, the first one I had, of course, uh, because you're a wise dude. Um, and one powerful statement that you said coming out of that was, why are we um, focused on like the birth of, ch of a child when it could be thrown into a meat grinder right after? Like, what about, you know, the, the issues surrounding after the birth, right? So that kind of speaks to what you just talked about, the right, you know, they don't really focus after that. They actively are concerned about how we could crush the poverty and how we could crush lower income folks and remove every sort of way they have support instead of, uh, you know, they're not looking at it from the full picture per se. Yeah, and I would I would say there definitely is differentiation between um, different segments of the pro-life movement and in, in, in the population in America. Um, so, but I, I think it's I think it's important to think about what we prioritize and how we prioritize it as as in terms of identifying what we actually value. So, if you think if you look at a lot of the legislation that has popped out, so one of the things with the abortion uh, situation with the Supreme Court is that it essentially pushed the the issue back to the states. It removed uh, it sort of a, a undid um, a, um, a ruling that had that had been you know fifty years ago. And it pushed it back to the states, but the issue hasn't been resolved. It's just, now it's just a matter of 50 states figuring out what they're going to do, and they're going to go in different directions. And if you look at a lot of the legislation that's being proposed, it's a lot of it is around um, uh, uh, restricting and, and eliminating abortion. But how much of the legislation is about actually um, dealing with the root issues of why people are, are having abortions? Um, you know, Romney has a really interesting childcare plan to address child poverty. Um, and it's those types of plans that seem to be getting um, pushed down or, or ignored in favor of these anti-abortion um, bills. So in terms of just the, the prominence of them, um, we'll see what happens in terms of which ones are actually voted on and passed and where things go. But I think it's important to just recognize where we put our energy um, 
And whether we're dealing with and resolving the root issue or whether or not we're just um, uh, doing surface level things that make us feel get, feel good and give us dopamine hits. Yeah, and I commend the right on that side, I guess, uh, even though it's just one guy doing it, having a more full circle type um, laws and supportive systems yeah. around it. Um, you know, before I move on to the left, I do want to quickly just say that there were actually 63 million babies that were uh, murdered, or I guess, killed by abortion. Uh, so that I learned about that about a month ago, and I was surprised at how big that number was in the last 50 years. <clears throat> so it's a whole, moving on to the our, our entire society could oh. be dramatically different with that many more people in it for a variety oh, yeah. of reasons. Um, yeah. So, and yeah, the, the, I guess to speak to that, the fear I had with uh, the major fear I had with uh, that is there was a correlation statistically that 20 years from Roe v. Wade being passed, there was a dramatic uh, downshift in, in crime. I think some people were saying as, as far as 50% down. And so there was no direct correlation, but I was concerned like, hey, if you're going to force people into having babies, they, we might have a massive spike in crime later. But since then, I've had quite a more nuanced and different perspective of, of how to look at that. Um, so we could jump into that as we go through it, too. Uh, so moving on to the left political party. So they're too focused on the pursuit of happiness and personal autonomy without considering the obligations to each other. Uh, for example, the mother making the decision on behalf of a child that has no decision-making uh, capability. Uh, Jason, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I would say the, the focus on the, the focus on outlawing abortion as a hyper-focused tunnel vision type of idea is just as is just as individualistic in terms of its ethic as, as the individualistic um, mindset of it's my body and my right and I can do with it that I want to. And so, um, you know, there, it, it's to make a decision that is um, not considering the, the other person in, in, in the decision, which in this case would be the baby. Now, there would be some on the left that would argue that, that um, you know, when does life begin, right? And there's that debate. And so they may not see it that way. Um, but I think that individualistic mindset can, um, can certainly permeate um, us. And it does in a lot of different ways. It's like, am I, I'm not willing to do something. I'm not willing to sacrifice personally for the benefit of someone else. I'd rather do what I want at the cost of somebody else. And so, um, so that individualistic, that autonomous self um, is based upon some fundamental assumptions and beliefs. And I, what I would kind of lean into is like, where, what is the basis of our, of our morality and our ethics? Is it come from me as an individual or is there a transcendent uh, uh, source of morality of which I'm attempting to align with. And so the autonomous self would essentially make the argument that I am the ultimate authority and I get to dictate what is right and wrong. And, um, and so if I say this is right and, or it's not wrong, then it is not wrong. But as someone who believes that morality comes from a transcendent source, God, um, 
I instead have to go, well, what does God have to say about this? And what is, how does God see this? And, um, and, and, and wrestle through that to come to a conclusion versus just me coming arbitrarily, arbitrarily to my own decision based on my own preferences or my own experiences or whatnot. Does it make sense? Yeah, for sure. What, uh, two things that really opened my mind to a different perspective on this versus my furiousness about somebody telling a woman what to do with their body. Uh, number one, a crime that occurred where a pregnant woman was killed. And so the question becomes, should the murderer be charged with two murders, two charges of murder or one? And so I'm pretty sure universally everybody would say it would be two, no matter if the baby was one day old in her womb or, you know, uh, one, three, nine months. Uh, I think that's pretty universally accepted. So that kind of blew my mind when a friend of mine uh, had it look at me that way uh, in terms of that crime. And then the other yeah. thing where I was studying the Bible on, on specific stuff like this, uh, and the verse that made it absolutely simplified, uh, although there's exceptions, I still feel to uh, making an abortion uh, happen. The thing that made it crystal clear for me was this verse that says, I knew you in the womb. And it says, it doesn't say I knew you in the womb, you know, at nine months or three months. It's basically, that's totalitarian, you know, one second, you know, one cell being made into a baby. And so that's what kind of had me different, having a different perspective on it. And then of course, there's also, you know, just having a control over your body of, you know, just having protected sex, that's another feasible thing that people could avoid, uh, you know, having to even consider abortion through. Um, so before we kind of go into the last couple of points here, um, I, I did want to actually introduce Ross. <laughs> so I haven't even mentioned him. In order to simplify kind of this very deep and intricate perspective, uh, he's actually drawing out a kind of full-fledged diagram of, of this entire uh, episode. So, hi guys. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is fun. <laughs> Thanks. I um, watch you guys battle it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, glad to have you here. Uh, I do want to uh, make one note on the, the pregnant pregnancy um, murder being two versus um, abortion not being considered murder. Um, it implies that we have an ethic that a person is of value when they are wanted, right? So mm. if someone is wanted, which in the case of an undesired murder, um, would, you know, that would be considered murder. But if they don't want the child in the case of abortion, then it's unwanted. And so in that situation, um, the, the person is not of, of value. Now, I think that's just an interesting dynamic to consider is like, is that the ethic that we want to define? Um, uh, who, who is, a person and, and, and whether or not they are valued as a society um, or not. And so I think that's that's in the implication. Now, someone might make the argument um, that uh, that's uh, pro-choice. They might make the argument again that, well, it's not murder because, um, you know, life doesn't start until a certain age. And they might say if it's if it's before that, um, before that amount of time in the womb, whether it's murder or abortion, it, it's 
whether someone kill takes the life through uh in the case of of the the example you gave versus an abortion there's no difference because the the, the um the fetus is not yet a baby is what they would sort of make that argument. And so you can kind of look at it a couple different ways and people make those arguments. I think it's important to, to see things how they see them, even if we disagree. Um, I think it would, we're as Christians, we ought to be generous and understanding the different points of view and representing them fairly versus trying to straw man them and, um, and make them seem uh, like they're, they're horrible because we're not going to, persuade anyone, which I think a lot of this has to do with really persuading people um, through our actions and our words towards, like I mentioned, the common good, towards a better way forward, towards a better form of flourishing that all of us mm -hmm. can partake of, not just, um, you know, select few. And right. so thinking about it in that way, I think is important. And then the other thing I would kind of more fundamentally kind of bring out is, you know, think about that, you know, when a baby is conceived, that um, egg is fertilized and that become it's move it's transforming into um, into a baby that's going to be born and then that child is going to grow up into an adult right and so to think about a um, whatever stops that can be a is a problem that we should be looking at and abortion is is one of those biggest stop points right it's to say that I want to stop this child from becoming what they ought to become what they deserve to become and um and we can kind of talk more about that and even the power dynamics that you know this this child is is completely dependent on the mother and its community and its society to be born and to become a productive member of society and um and if someone decides to end its life it has no choice in the matter it has no um the power dynamic is so lopsided that the that the child is forced to go along with it and um and uh that, that's an important dynamic to consider yeah you mentioned a straw man like who's a man carrying around straws like that's just weird. <laughs> yeah a straw man would be like making an argument <laughs> i know come on jason it's a so, bad joke <laughs> uh yeah for those that don't know uh the opposite would be steel manning like hey ha what's the strongest argument that they're making and and trying to present it that way so okay yeah. So, so that's feeling straw. <laughs> so wherever you stand on this, our goal is not to tell you you're wrong. Like a lot of everybody out there, I'm sure is doing. The goal of the issue is to eliminate kind of following a group about this matter, the left, the right, the middle, you know, outside peripheral, because it's so easy to follow behind a group on this matter, especially the left or the right, because it's the massive, you know, forms of our population. Uh, just look at, you know, the outrage uh, following group situation that happened on January 6th. So that's not what this is, you know, you know, it's, we're not trying to go into justifying something based on following a group, you know, look at how many Christians justified slavery because they were following a group. Uh, this is not what yeah. we're doing here. Yeah. And so I definitely want to press into that and really kind of lean into this idea that our superhuman power, our superpower as humans is to justify what we're doing as good, even when it's wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I think as a baseline, we have to recognize that that's our propensity. And so we are dependent on each other to rationalize towards what is good. And we also have the propensity to rationalize 
horrible things, we often use ideologies to do this, to justify that what I'm doing is not just wrong, but it's a good thing. And so a lot of the, um, the human atrocities that have been committed over the years and over the centuries and over the millennium has been based on people believing these ideologies that, that um, inform that what they're doing is, is a good thing. It's a just thing. Yeah, but it may not be. And so I think we have to recognize our propensity in order to, one, question ourselves and each other and to figure out how do we align with a transcendent good um, if, if it's ultimately just about individual, uh, what I think is good and what you think is good, and, and we're all just sort of fighting amongst each other, it ultimately comes down to a power, a power battle. Whoever's got, whoever's the strongest is going to get to dictate their preference. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I think it's important to recognize that. And I do want to just bring a quick example, uh, in terms of the Holocaust, in terms of the World War II. Um, this is a, a passage from a book called Ordinary Men, which is about these men that became Nazi killers of, of Jews. And this is how they, one of the ways that one of them rationalized um, what he was doing as a good thing, just to give it a specific example. So this is a quote from him. He said, I made the effort and it was possible for me to shoot only children. It so happened that the mothers led the children by the hand. My neighbor then shot the mother and I shot the child that belonged to her. Because I reasoned with myself that, after all, without its mother, the child could not live any longer, it was supposed to be, so to speak, soothing to my conscience to release the children unable to live without their mothers. The full state, and then he gives a little commentary to the author. The full weight of the statement and the significance of the word choice of the former policeman cannot be fully appreciated unless one knows that the German word for release also means to redeem or save when used in a religious sense. The one who releases is the savior or redeemer. So he was justifying himself by shooting the child be, as seeing himself as the savior and redeemer, um, which we would look at and say is horrible. And so I think it's just a really important point for us to recognize our propensity to justify and that our justification can be um, done in, the, in, um, in a very morally wrong way. And to have that question about ourselves is important so that we can actually have the rational debate about it and explore the different options and also be generous with each other in that discussion. Does that make sense? For sure, man. The, like you said, the brain could justify anything, which is why we have to have these conversations. Uh, The, the Bible verse comes to mind, uh, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you're not actively renewing your mind, then you're just kind of, floating into the cultural realities of this world. And so speaking about just talking about this stuff, that's one of the other goals of this episode, just talking about it so it's less hostile. You know, an alcoholic has to come to grips when they want to recover with talking about their issues and not having judgment around it. And in the same way, we have an addiction to outrage in our culture. If we can't talk about it like normal human beings, without threatening each other, without violence, then we can't move on to the next phase of, you know, making this, uh, our, ourselves better, our society better, villages, etc. You know, if you can't talk to someone about abortion without fear of dying, then we'll never overcome it. Uh, having a neutral arena to talk about this is key, and that's what this is all about. Now, to talk more about some other aspects of this, um, I guess this is kind of a uh, more on the left. 
sex is placed above discipline as a virtue. Uh, when in reality, sex is just like a dopamine rush giving thing like ice cream. You can't really say that my urgency for ice cream is a virtue in the same way you can't say sex is a virtue. Um, and, you know, if just to tie that into more of a, our perspective as, as believers, um, if there's no God, then free, li then free liberty to do anything, free liberty of even virtue and the definition of virtue makes sense. But if your God is Jesus, we're encouraging you to look at this at more a uh, holistic way versus not, uh, versus even just following the right or the left. Uh, Christian on the right, look at this at a full circle versus a hard stance of it must stop right now, one minute from now, or I'm gonna start hitting people. Christians on the left, look at this matter as a matter of dependence and our choices impact other people. Therefore, both are wrong so we have to come back to Jesus. Um, so, uh, Jason, before we start to jump into the beat of this, you know, the CAGE acronym, any other thoughts you want to add to the intro? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, there's definitely a lot we can, we can explore. I think we've talked about this idea of um, our superpower to justify um, whether or not there is a transcendent good or whether we just, have our own goods and we're just fighting for those um whether we're aligning with the transcendent good if it does exist whether we're dependent creatures or autonomous creatures what do we owe each other do we owe each other anything um do i owe this child anything does this child owe me anything um does does my community owe me anything or or is uh, am i an island of which uh we you know community is simply a transaction of of i give and you and you receive and vice versa and there's no duty beyond that um so i think some of those ideas are really the underlying pieces of this there's also responsibility um in terms of uh, sexual relations um inside or outside of marriage and how that has an, an effect but a lot of abortions do happen within marriage so it's not just um it's not just a uh, a marriage issue um so but that that dynamic and then you also have you know ha uh, when you do have sexual relationships, are you um, using birth control or not? Um, and you know, is is that more important or less important than than abortion? And how did those play out? And how did those sort of inform how we see things, both in negative and positive ways? Um, but ultimately, the nature of what it is, what is, um, what is a child for, and where does it come from? In terms of its sort of, it's the relationship. It's a loving relationship, um, sexual relationship that gives life, right? And so, why do why is that relationship? Why is the family matter? What is the purpose of family? How does it play a role in community? How does it play a role in society? And how do these sort of pieces of the puzzle come together? Or are they just indi individual? Um, modules uh, unconnected to each other or are they connected you know the so i'm sort of throwing these questions out there in these kind of poles on different spectrums just to get us thinking about the really the root issues that we're exploring does that make sense yeah yeah you know power differentials you mentioned one um, when you mentioned what is owed yeah, yeah when you mentioned what is owed you know one could easily say as a man 
you owe a child 18 years of your life at a minimum because you knew what you were getting into when you're having unprotected sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and we may be connecting, we may be participating in something without the commitment of that 18 years. Right. And so there's a disconnect. And I would call that that there's something wrong there because it doesn't align with, with the transcendent um, good. And so if I'm conducting behavior that is neglecting the responsibility, then there's a problem that we need to love talk about. Yeah. And on the opposite side of that, uh, a woman accepting that um, is also another degree of, of responsibility, right? If uh, you wanted to have unprotected sex with a, a man, um, are you accepting it maybe because of fear of something? Is that something you got to address? Maybe have therapy about like uh, fearing the rejection of men because they're not good for you or they just want to have sex with you. Those are deeper topics outside of this, but it's like other things that may not want to be directly addressed too. Um, yeah. And then you also have, what does the community owe them and what does society owe them? And, and, yeah. um, and the community, you know, if, if someone neglects their responsibility, the community should move heaven and earth to step in and fill that void. And the society should, if the community fails to do that, the society should step in and do the same. And so we should have, again, to move towards this common good, we should have an ecosystem that when there is failure on any one part, that doesn't break the system. Um, the system is self-healing and, and injects um, uh, a way to fill those gaps. Right. Okay. So let's jump into complacency. So the few kind of points here is inconsistent socioeconomic issues, uh, lack of sexual discipline, which we just kind of talked about, lack of mentoring and lack of imagination. So the lack of uh, socioeconomic or inconsistent socioeconomic issues, lack of proper affordable housing, which is what my company focuses on, uh, jobs, education, which leads naturally to crime from a cycle of poverty and rejection you know, not dealing with the root causes of these issues, just kind of putting band-aids on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on those, Jason? Well, I'll dive into uh, um, mass into imagination. And I'm going to quote a Alistair McIntyre philosopher again. What is owed to the child? As far as possible, a particular kind of family life, family life with unconditional bonds, for without them, a child cannot have the kind of security it needs. A child has to be in family where the parents are to give the children the attention they deserve and are able to provide the children with what they need. So I think um, one of the, my criticisms uh, with the pro-life movement um, is it's, in my opinion, it's lack of imagination as a whole. Now, there are some good examples of the imagination. But in my mind, I'm thinking if you really want to stop abortion, is picketing at an abortion clinic really going to make that much of a difference? Perhaps we could spend that same energy in a more creative way that actually has an impact. Now, um, Gabe Lyons, um, he's one example of this. He, uh, he, him and his wife found out they were having a child with Down syndrome. And I think 90% of children with Down syndromes have an um, abortion. And, or it's a really high number if I'm off the mark. But, um, and he was pretty uh, stunned by that number. And, and I think it kind of goes back to that comment about our our societal ethic is a, um, in terms of when people are valuable is based on whether they're wanted or not. And, um, and so, um, 
he what he did is he actually created a campaign, a marketing campaign, and he created these these uh, these messages and these brochures, and he started giving them to uh, office doctors' offices and different places. And what he wanted to do is paint the life of having a child with Down syndrome and how beautiful it was and how wonderful it was and and. And yeah, there are some challenges and difficulties, but that person is still a person and they're still valuable and they have lots to teach me just as much as I have to teach them. And not to see myself as above them or below them, but to see myself as the same as them. And, um, and I think that's, uh, that's something we have as humans struggle to do. We don't want to see ourselves in someone that's disabled. We don't want to see ourselves in someone that is dependent or needy or, um, or is, is weak, right? We'd rather be associated with the strong and the healthy, right? Um, but it's in in those that are um, in those places and in those situations that we get to see a, a side of our humanity that maybe we want to ignore instead. So I think with imagination, I just think about like we've spent fifty years trying to undo uh, Roe v. versus Wade. What? did we really accomplish? Because looking at the stats, the abortion rate is now what it was before Roe v. Roe v. Wade. Okay, so we've gone back, we've gone in a big circle. We're back to where we started. And I'm thinking maybe we could have spent those 50 years a little bit different if we'd been more creative and really focused on the lives, the, begin, the conception, the, the uh, you know, the baby being um, developed and then born and then the, the life of those children after birth. Perhaps we could have done things in the last 50 years that could have actually made a difference um, so that when it when this change in Roe v. happened, it would have just been a formality of, of a trend that had already been in, in the works for the prior 60 years. So those are a few thoughts that come to mind. Yeah, Republicans say they're all about uh, cutting budget and saving uh, the economy by, you know, doing things that are, are beneficial to business and things like this. But statistically, over the last 40 years, they've actually, if not added a little bit more to the deficit, uh, done things to uh, actively hinder the, the deficit from uh, decreasing. So that sort of lie I also wanted to pin on the right um, is has been perpetrated and people just kind of vote for their side because they say they do things, but they actually don't the statistics prove otherwise. Um, yeah. And they, I, what I would add though, is I think, um, from the, on the right side of things, um, there is a tendency to want to address these issues in a private manner, in a privatized manner, um, in the market versus through the government, um, and through private, you no know, nonprofits, uh, community groups and whatnot. And I, I think that can be useful. And I think that can help uh, stop gaps. There is a scale problem. Like, how do you how do you address some of these issues at scale, um, without yeah. without the involvement or at least partnership with government? So I, don't I think, think some of those giving tax breaks to billionaires though is the way to uh, do that in terms of uh, privatizing and reducing tax liability to benefit the rich. Yeah, They're I mean, reduced. in terms of, I mean, that gets back to that autonomous spirit. You know, that that's really uh, the left and the right are both the same in terms of autonomy. We're, we're both um, um, we just manifest in different ways. And so um, what do the wealthy owe the poor, right? What do, um, what is their duty and obligation responsibility? And, yeah. and how does that play out? And I think when it gets too, um, 
you know, society starts to shake when the disparity grows too much between the wealthy and the and the yeah. poor. I just and, feel if the wealthy isn't putting their at least more than zero in, which is what a lot of these rich people they don't have to pay anything. Um, then the kind of services, the full circle services that lower income people could really depend on to have a full circle to be able to raise a child if they're working at McDonald's or something like that. Or maybe they have a condition to where they can't work effectively to raise a family. Um, that would be able to be uh, more better, better sustained. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, okay. Something that actually both sides have been able to work on is uh, these light tech credits, which is low income housing tax credits. For the last 20 or something years like that, they've it's been a partisan issue. Both both sides have supported the laws for it, and it's uh, actually supported uh, 2.3 million affordable housing units over the last, uh, again, it has to be 20 years at least, probably more. But uh, it's since that's my sector, affordable housing, I actually don't even use government support to do it. Mm-hmm. But I will say the complexity, the bureaucracy, the amount of numbers involved just to be able to do that light tech stuff is ridiculous. And so I feel if there had more support, maybe more of a tax base thrown in there, that could be a way of naturally uh, providing these other uh, ancillary services to people that need it. Because uh, in terms of just money uh, lost to affordable housing, that by itself, it costs about $2 uh, $2 trillion a year to the uh, U.S. economy. So I feel it should be less complicated and more uh, government support. Even dollars should be put into that, too. And that could be something that could be, again, done in in different ways instead of uh, cutting you know, let's let's think about how many things we cut as fast as possible. Uh, creative ways to do that from a tax-based perspective, um, and and what, how it ties into complacency. Uh, we've gotten so addicted to outrage that you know both parties actually are caught up in inaction and and complaints. So that's a, a complacency of just not wanting to do anything or acting based on um, being upset <laughs> instead of moving society forward. I went to a affordable housing conference uh, earlier this year and the most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life, uh, the city was reaching out to state legislators, which are predominantly Republican in that in that time period. And they were asking for more of these light tech credits to be able to, in their cities, have more of it. And because of all the election stuff going on, the state legislators were actively uh, cutting down the support that was already allotted for the year. So they were weaponizing politics to hurt people's lives at scale. And I just wanted to punch somebody of like, (laughs) you guys don't understand how this affects people. Like affordable housing is the number one cause of inflation. Yeah, feels like they're just playing a game and it really affects people, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of how the word woke is weaponized in, in news and by politics. I'm like, you guys don't understand. Woke means, at its essence, of being awakened to all the atrocities of, that our country has done. It doesn't mean, hey, white person, you're a bad person. It, it means, hey, this we got some dark stuff in our past. 
period. Just recognize it instead of uh, kind of throwing it on the rug and saying, everything's fine, everything's great. Our, our country is perfect, our economy is perfect, and what we did in the past is the past, leave it there. Uh, so it, it just annoys me when the word woke is used to, it's even been um, taken in by the LGBT. They just kind of took it into their, their reins and I'm like, you guys just took it away from black people that deserve it a whole lot more for the last 400 years than what yeah. you guys. We like to take things and then, uh, and then use them, um, regardless of where we got them. Yeah. Um, but I, I think just in terms of a, a couple, I wanted to read a couple passages from, uh, Thomas Oden. He's, um, he wrote a book called care of the souls in the classic tradition. Um, uh, if you counsel people, like it's a great book, you can find a copy of it online for free on, and it got published in 1984 and I think it went out of print, but, um, but it's really uh, about the the um, the tradition of counseling uh, Christian through the Christian tradition um, since the early Christian church and how that and he kind of pulls it together and then applies some modern principles into that. But there's a couple there's a section he talks about the rich and the poor, and um, I thought it was a, a couple of interesting things he said. On, um, one in terms of giving, um, he says. Uh, Gregory makes a stunning point on the ambiguities of giving to those derelicts among the poor who are by consensus generally regarded as less worthy. One should not just give to the unworthy poor, but also to the worthy poor, regardless of their moral condition. And for a profound reason, because one gives of his bread to an indignant sinner, not because he is a sinner, but because he is a man. In doing so, one actually nourishes a righteous beggar, not a sinner, for he loves him not in his sin, but his nature. I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing he talks about in terms of, of those that have a lot and are hoarding it, says Gregory proposed a specific approach to the counsel of the compulsively withholding person who says, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm just holding on to what I have. Such a person needs tactfully to be instructed that charity for the poor is not merely an act of mercy, but also a matter of justice. When we administer necessities to the needy, we give them what is their own, not what is ours. We pay a debt of justice rather than do a work of mercy. To the compulsive withholder, Gregory tells the story of the barren fig tree. It did not harm anybody else, but it did in fact take up ground. The axe will be laid to such a tree, as John the Baptist remarks, if it does not produce fruit. Mm. Good stuff, man. So, anything else? Uh, oh, one thing I will say on, on complacency, you mentioned, mentioned mentoring. I think right. it's really important for us that uh, value the life of the child and the child being born versus being aborted to recognize the importance of mentorship and to recognize the reality that a lot of abortions take place at the counsel of someone else. So this means that they are being counseled by someone who is advising them to give an abortion. Mm -hmm. And as a young, if you're young, if you're a teenager or a young person and you've just gotten pregnant and it's overwhelming and you feel despair or depression you know you're going to be influenced by the people that you look up to and the authorities in your life and this is why i think mentoring is so important is because when that moment happens those people are going to, these women are going to turn um these women and men because sometimes these abortions are pressed on by the man um to, for the women to do it um and there's you know examples of that where i, I know someone um who her husband pressed her to have an abortion and she, she would not do it. And she didn't, she didn't relent. 
Um, but some people may, may relent and they may regret it later. But, um, but if we're mentoring and we're making disciples as Christ called us to do, um, then we're going to be in the places in those situations where, where decisions are made and we can have an influence on that. And so I think mentoring is a really important factor in terms of addressing it. It's a very, you know, small level. Um, but it's also something we can all do. It's also, it's something we can play a role in, in with our neighbors and our community and our church and school, wherever it might be that we think is most appropriate to do so. Yeah. Uh, that phrase takes a village to raise a child is there for a reason. Uh, not just one party yeah. or even yeah, two need, parts. Yeah. Cause each of us is only going to have a part and, uh, and as a group we can fill the gaps. So, yeah. A total aside here, you know, people are afraid of strangers because of stranger danger type stuff in terms of uh, it takes a village to raise a child. So you don't want strangers <laughs> near, near your child. But, uh, you know, it makes me think of people that are atheists that have no belief in God, but they are fully recognizant of the evil demons that are out there in the world, you know, that are causing this sort of disarray, this stranger danger, you know, pedophiles. And we even just saw it in the Balenciaga ads, um, the evil that was trying to be perpetrated uh, kind of subconsciously almost until somebody called them out on it. Um, so I guess the village is essentially being targeted. And so when you can't even ha develop a relationship to strangers, you're kind of uh, forced to have a, a nuclear perspective on everything. Like, how does this benefit me? Uh, how do, well, that person over there is looking at me weird. So it must be some he or she must be something weird. Uh, there's a kind of a massive targeting of people that I think everybody could agree with. And so that creates a, a power vacuum that inherently makes this abortion issue that much more harder. Uh, fathers are being targeted. The definition of a man is being targeted or a woman. Um, I, I know there was uh, something I heard recently that the one of the LGBT groups wanted to rename breastfeeding to chest feeding because it was more appropriate uh, in their perspective. So it was inappropriate to say breastfeeding. Uh, so all sorts of targeting is going on uh, that I just want to put that uh, complacency uh, thing. That, yeah, uh, it's kind it. of a questioning reality. What is reality? And is it, and that kind of goes back to, is, is there a transcendent morality or is it just my own morality? And, um, and are we, sh you know, are we shaping reality, trying to make it what we want it to be? Or are we sort of harmonizing ourselves with what reality is? Um, and I'm also reminded by another, this is another passage, I think that really kind of leans into those ideas in terms of vision versus threats and the difference. So for McIntyre, contemporary liberalism heavily influenced by the social contract theory of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke is far too concerned with managing threats internal and external from its perceived enemies, rather than advancing a positive vision of the common good. The limitation of this perspective is that, as Perot Sassian neatly puts it, by keeping only to the perspective of what is evil, we run the risk of dangerously narrowing our range of vision. So by by being in a defensive um, threat posture, we lose, we go blind. 
Mm-hmm. And um, when you go blind, then we die, you know. So we need to have vision. And that kind of goes back to the common good and the flourishing of people and individuals and society and families and communities. And how do we move towards that? So that was something that came to mind when you were talking. Yeah. And what makes that hard is like somebody that does not want to accept principles, like, for example, the Bible, they're kind of just kind of going in and blind, like you're saying, and to to their own definitions. If I'm going to define it. Now, the interesting thing is in our society, we're, we're in a Christian society in many ways. So we're all Christian, even if we're not in terms of the ethics that we inherit. Um, so that's good in sense of it creates some common ground, even for those that might disagree. But when you start to look at societies that don't have those baseline beliefs and assumptions, it does become a lot more difficult. I don't know, bro. To say we're a Christian society is questionable to me nowadays. <laughs> well, that's I, that what I'm a lot of the ethics that we take for granted are are based on Christian morality. And as well, much as we move away from it, those are those are still there. And we may it may be fading. Think about think about the sacrificial side of Christianity. Ninety percent of the people I know do not want to be sacrificial. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I could say at a surface level we're Christian. That, well, that's that what I, yeah. I mean, ethically, there's a lot of things yeah. that we that are good or bad as a society, but those those fade until unless we re um, reaffirm them, right? So, but what what I'm saying is you haven't, well, you got to look at a society that is completely unhinged and then compare it to us. And that's where you'll see the types of things I'm describing. So we are unhinged in our own way, but when you compare it to a society that is um, unhinged from Christianity in a really deep way, you, there's just a lot of things we take for granted, um, the left and the right, that those aren't even considerations in some of these other societies. So both in history and other parts of the world. So one might say we need a carpenter to fix the hinge. Yes, we might. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> before we atrophy, we need that to happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, man, there was so much good stuff there. Um, you know, the passage you you read made me think of a hilariously simplified version that of, of that of mentoring and the value of, of strangers that uh, Grant Cardone, that real estate uh, millionaire, brought up. He said, I teach my children to talk to strangers. Like, you, do you know how many millions I've raised in capital from strangers? <laughs> like, we've got this upbringing that is totally skewed yeah. to uh, basically keep people not having wealth because we can't even talk to strangers, you know? So if you grow up with that, how much yeah. harder is it going to be to not even forget about having a business? How about, how could you start a, a relationship with somebody if you're afraid of talking to them, you know? Yeah. So that's under attack, but let's move on. Um, for at the end of each segment here. So at the end of complacency, we're moving on to atrophy. I want to go ahead and bring in Ross to kind of speak to his, his diagram. That is clearly <laughs> like 80% complacency now. Hi, <laughs> guys. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic. I uh, will have to figure out how to fit the rest of it in because you've got so much good yeah. <laughs> info already. Um, can you all see it okay? Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, do you want me to say any salient points or just want to move on? Uh, if you wanted to speak to any uh, things that kind of stuck out to you, feel free. 
Yeah, I think you guys did a great job of pointing out that we have a decision to make as a culture, uh, which direction we go, whether it's towards um, our own pleasure and com um, convenience or appealing to a higher ethic that's established before us, despite what is convenient to us. And a lot of it comes down to that, I think. Mm. That's true. Yeah, man. Right. I love the way you simplified that. <laughs> and our already 50 minute <laughs> kind of discussion on this, you really broke it down. So Combo. thank you. I love the, the artwork you're putting together there too. Awesome. Glad, glad I brought you in for this, man. Uh, I'll keep it coming here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Jumping into atrophy. So atrophy kind of naturally brings into the question, what is it the child owed? Have we uh, atrophied that muscle of, of what a child is owed and the story of the child? What is the story of the mother or uh, having their, their fate completely out of their control or the perspective of that, right? Having a child kind of uh, deducts you in your, perhaps some of your life and your goals. Although I would say there's still plenty of billionaires and millionaires that happen to be mo mothers. So one could argue that that perspective is not entirely true if you focus and, uh, you know, educate. And uh, of course, that's an ancillary service that has to be um, yeah. provided. I mean, for the, the experience of a mother in poverty versus experience of a mother in affluence is a different experience in a lot of ways. And I mm -hmm. think um, ought to be considered as part of this discussion and also helping to address it. Yeah. But ultimately the mother has power over the life of the child, but the child does not have the same. Um, another thing that kind of came up when I was having intense conversation with, with you brothers about this stuff, uh, also talked about it to my wife, of course. Um, I tried to even bring a, a, a woman who runs a kind of ancillary service, anti, uh, abortion clinic type thing to kind of help a woman to not have those, uh, not have an abortion. Um, and talking and getting these uh, more perspectives, I, I realized this is actually have more of a history that I was not aware of. Um, and the kind of uh, founder of, of Plant Parenthood had some uh, questionable beginnings uh, that I learned about. Uh, some of the uh, perspectives I was hearing was saying that she actually was into eugenics, which is a form of uh, cutting out people that are not good for society, which so happened to be minorities in the early 1900s. Or it could and be disabled so, people. It could be yeah. whatever someone might deem as inferior. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was getting another perspective on it too, in terms of what was your, uh, upbringing like in school in terms of uh, Planned Parenthood. And uh, I won't say this person's name, but she told me that Planned Parenthood would actually visit uh, their her school regularly and would want the, to give them uh, pills and wouldn't even say what the pills are. And, and so it kind of is a very questionable way uh, that children are being exposed to something they can't even make decisions about. And this person happened to be black, 
So uh, there, it was a low, lower income black school, uh, majority black. So it kind of made me think of like, um, I didn't grow up with that sort of thing. I never heard any of my white friends or you know lighter skin friends talking about that sort of thing at their their school. So it just kind of raised an yeah, eyebrow. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of the abortions do happen in the black community and. Think of like you mentioned the sixty-three million. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but a large chunk of those is the black community. And to think, what kind of how different would that community be if those those children had been born? Um, just in terms of its its share of the human of the American population, right? So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you know, just talking about like what is the child owed? You know, I mentioned that quote um, from Al Zacker. McIntyre, he says, you know, a child is owed a particular kind of family. And so apathy would be they don't have a family or they have a fragmented family or they're an orphan would be kind of the kind of the worst case scenario. Um, he says a family life with unconditional bonds. So atrophy would be a family life with conditional bonds where they're only part of the family because maybe they contribute something or they, there's, um, there's some, some reason, but they're not uh, part of that. Um, or the part of a, so he also says where the parents are able to give the children the attention they deserve. So an apathy, an apathetic, you know, apathy would be, uh, parents who didn't give their kids the attention they deserve. And that's something I think can be true of all of all of us parents. Like there's probably some areas that I'm, I am apath, apathizing, ap apathying, um, where <laughs> I have apathied. And, uh, and then he says to provide the children what they need. And so I think that's a, a practical application for anyone that's a parent, a grandparent, or a neighbor, or a community to go, okay, this is what the vision looks like. Where am I, where am I failing? Where, where can I pick up? Um, and also, maybe how can I step in to family member or my children's, you know, grandchildren's lives or wherever it might be and, uh, and make that impact, so... Yeah, all solid perspectives. Um, you know, I think it's uh, okay to go ahead and move on to the, the guilt section. Um, okay. Uh, because complacency and atrophy kind of connected together on that one. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of it already, so. Yeah. All right. So um, let's take a look. Uh, Ross. Luckily, we, we didn't make this point too long for you. Yeah, sorry, I missed. I dropped out there. <laughs> You're good. So, um, um, oh, wait, that's all of atrophy right there? Yeah, that's all of atrophy. Yeah. All so right. we could yeah, we'll, we'll keep that one small to give you more space for the rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've kind of been covering a lot of the topics that are really in all four categories. We're just yeah. sort of reiterating them over and over. So that's uh, probably part of the dynamic. Cool. Yeah, that's probably true. You're not gonna, about to draw his peepee, -pee, um, are you? Oh, uh, his peepee. -pee, it's a girl. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's awkward. There's some more hair. Okay. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they take this rando pill. Um, okay. I get what you're connecting that to now. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So. Oh, Planned Parenthood is the peepee. -pee. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, yeah. I have connected the dots. And you said has the value. Oh, sorry, I unplugged for a second. It's okay. Yeah, but I'm dealing with battery issues. It should be 
Okay, I'm, I'm good to go, though. I'm, I'm listening again. Sorry, guys. You're good. And then go you ahead. said, has the value of life of humans has diminished? It's a pretty powerful way to Is that what that we down. were talking about with atrophy? atrophy? Yeah. 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 I Yeah. You know, what is the ode to the child? And then essentially, um, what are we giving the child? We're, um, if we're not giving them what they're owed, um, then yeah. they're going to... They're going to become the type of person um, that can't be the type of member of society that both flourishes as an individual and helps the society to flourish. And so that kind of gets to Ivan's point earlier about, um, you know, the type of life that that's created and what that what the consequences of that are for other people. And so if we um, if we take those consequences seriously. And we ought to, and this is why I think Christianity is so interesting in terms of addressing this. Is it talks about over and over caring for the orphans and the widows, caring for the orphans and the widows. And um, that is in many ways our call, right, as Christians, take care of the orphans and the widows. And the orphans, um, because we need them, we want them, they have something to teach us and we have something to teach them. And together we can create this flourishing society. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of the of the early church um, in Rome. You know, infanticide was a common thing in Rome. Uh, people would have a child, and if it wasn't, um, they maybe they didn't want to have the child, or maybe it was a gender they didn't care, they didn't want. They would just essentially mm-hmm. go take the children and uh, these babies and put them by the river, and they would let nature take care of care of them which would essentially be leaving them to the death. So the Christians saw this and they just went to the rivers and they started collecting and, uh, and, and um, parenting and these, these orphans. Yeah. And, that's how um, I spend my Saturdays is they, just they, going to the river and collecting babies. <laughs> going to the river, saving <laughs> babies, but they didn't have a directive. There wasn't anything that Jesus said or that Paul said, or the new Testament said, it was just these babies are being neglected to die and we value them, even though nobody else wants them, we want them. And so they went to them and they saved them. And I think that's the type of mindset I think we need to have in, with, with, um, in our current society, right? And it's hard, you know, and it's also we're overwhelmed because it's such a big society that we live in and there's so many problems and we're inundated with all the information about it. But we do have a circle of life that we live in. We have a house we live in and a neighborhood we live in and a community and a church and in a city. And those are areas we can we can make a difference. So, yeah, I think something else we've atrophied. Uh, I would love that our schools would have a, a class about is social etiquette, which is all about treating other people in certain ways, you know, politeness and how to even have friendships, relationships. Uh, we have classes around sex, but we don't even talk about what it means, right? What What are the consequences or the responsibility of it? And so I think a social etiquette class would be able to address those sorts of things so we could operate better in society instead of just kind of figuring out on all, all on our own, um, like even how to, you know, have a, a girlfriend. I didn't know how to do that. I had to look up online courses. <laughs> Yeah, you know, get, get pirate some courses for myself, which mm-hmm. ended up being unhealthy for me because uh, that was a skewed definition of how to pick up girls and all this stuff. Um, so social etiquette would be good, um, and it would also help to block off that uh, 
emotional unhealthiness of like, I'm going to do things only that benefit me uh, because this life is all about me, you know, which brings in this abortion topic. Uh, how could you even consider what the life of a child is or could mean to you if you're thinking first and foremost about surviving yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the very thing, the very, that. yeah, the, the very thing that you might need might be in having that child. In other words, you're in a, you're yeah, in a survival a think about it. place, and it could be the very thing that could change you in a way that could change your situation. Uh, I, I've experienced that in many ways. Um, so it's interest. It's just an interesting dynamic that this is kind of we can dive into Speak more. Speak to your experience, bro, because you have both. Yeah, definitely. Speak to your experience on on children and family. Well, I I I was meaning more of like. Um, well, I do have five kids, so I definitely have, I guess I could use that as an example, but um, mm-hmm. more specifically, you know, having who I was before I had children and who I am now, um, there's, uh, now, not everyone necessarily embraces that. They can have children and then just sort of ignore it. Um, but if you want to allow it to transform you, that opportunity is there. And so I'm a very different person before, you know, we had our first child in 2009. Uh, she's 13 and, and now we have five children and um she's she's 13 and then the youngest is four and i have to now put myself set myself aside so in terms of like responsibility which is the next part under guilt is personal responsibility there are a lot of things i want to do that i would love to pursue that that i sort of either have to set aside or slow down or pause because of my children and there are probably things i should probably do more of that for my for the sake of my children and and really lean into um um, being being the type of father that they need and, and is ideal for them. Um, but there are a lot of considerations that I had, a lot of sacrifices I have to make to set myself aside. Um, and that's been transformative, but it's also very fulfilling, right? It's, it's, a, it's a different, it's a trade-off. You lose kind of maybe those personal pleasures and conveniences that we talked about earlier. But I get something better back. I get something meaningful and deep and um, long, uh, long-term. And, um, and so five, my five kids each have something to teach me and they're very different personality wise. And so they interact and interface with me differently. And we were at odds and conflict at different levels about different things. And that conflict, if I, when I allow it, allows it to be a mirror to see myself to go, okay, what's going on in me that's, that's, uh, surfacing this thing inside of me, this this anger or this um, sadness or whatever it might be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it also forces you to reflect on why did I put them in a basement for a week? Yeah. Yep. They like to, we don't unfortunately have a basement, but. Um, you just ruined that joke, Jason. We do have, we do have a Hogwarts room so they can go in there. I, I disapprove of your <laughs> rebuttal. So. <laughs> so. It's, it's interesting. It, it, everything depends on perspective, right? Because you just said you kind of had to limit what you did in life uh, to uh, for in, for your children. But I, I look at your life and I'm, you, you ran a dozen person shop um, ad agency, marketing agency while having, while having children. Um, you have transitioned uh, with a one year Sabbath to a, a freelance business that is dramatically fulfilling. And I'm like, what do you mean you have to limit your life? Like, dude, like, 
Well, no, that's a good point because I think it's important to recognize that sacrifice, that's kind of what I was saying, like you sacrifice something um, and something better is on the other side. And that's where the hope and despair piece comes in that we talked about at the beginning is, do I believe there is something better on the other side? Or do I have despair and that it's only going to get worse? And, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer because sometimes things do get worse and sometimes things do get better and how to navigate that. And sometimes we have to trust. I think it's a trust thing, trusting God, like going back to Ross's point about transcendent. If I believe there's a God and I trust that God, then I can trust that no matter how difficult it gets or what difficulty I go through, um, there's something better on the other side of that. Yeah. And that's a powerful position to be, um, as opposed to, mm -hmm. sorry, atheist, I got to call you out again. Yeah. So <laughs> I might feel like, oh my goodness, my only choice in this situation is for us to have an abortion. Yeah. It's, it's only going to make things a, worse. A faith that things will happen because of your relationship mm -hmm. with God. Yeah, because uh, I can and trust that you know have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, like, Jason, you got to tell the, the minivan story now because that was one of your. Yeah, many I mean that would be an example. I had a, I had a, uh, we had a situation where we needed another vehicle, or we were having more kids, and we had an SUV, and it wasn't working. But I had a, but we were, we had sort of this compelling uh, voice um, that I thought that I, you know I interpreted was God telling us to sell our SUV, and that God was going to make a way. And we sold the SUV without knowing what, what the, that way was going to be. And um, we had a friend that showed up at our house like a week later and they had bought us a minivan and um, and gifted it to us. And so it was just uh, God showing up. And, no prompting whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just someone that saw the need and acted on it and they made a difference. And um, interestingly enough, the SUV we had before that was also gifted to us in another situation prior to that. Um, so we've been very, we've, we've been, generosity has been lavished on us. And so I, I, I aim to have a mindset and a system of generosity where I systematically give both financially, but in other ways, as much as I can, I want to give as much as I've been given to. And ultimately that's reflective of my relationship with, with God in terms of God, um, giving so generously to me in my undeserved states and bringing me into a better place. Yeah. So that's uh, another perspective, uh, I guess, when it comes to abortion, to having that faith is kind of hard to have sometimes that mm -hmm. you will be cared for. Yeah. And it's and not if, necessarily yeah. a guarantee too. That's another scary thing too. And that goes back, you know, as an example of what is the child owed, they may have grown up in a family where they didn't get that from their parents. And their lack of faith is because of how they were raised. And that was something they were robbed of. And I think, but we have an opportunity to help those people. Uh, there's something for them to teach us and something for us to teach them. Perhaps we're naive about just the difficulties and sin of the world. And perhaps um, they have uh, some generosity to benefit from that we can participate in. Yeah. One of our close friends in our group that we hang out monthly, the, the bros, um, that I was surprised to have heard about is that, uh, they heard about, uh, a woman that was co contemplating abortion and they went ahead and, uh, committed to supporting them and whatever they need, babysitting financially. And I was like, dude, this is just about a stranger that you just met in church. Like, 
and that just shows the, generos the generosity that we have been uh, given through Jesus. Um, and I, I think there's a whole lot more than just that guy that I know in our group yeah. that are doing that, that are fellow Christians. So it's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, and then, you know, the guilt piece, right, is there's a lot of guilt that can kind of surround all of these layers and that guilt can then lead to shame and that shame can perpetuate the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, guilt, guilt. So that kind of ties into personal responsibility, but it, it's also what we talked about before, uh, the government not necessarily, not necessarily always having ancillary services to support the person through their struggles, um, like education, proper education, babysitting, uh, housing, that sort of thing. So my heart goes out to those folks that are groaning day to day about how is that going to happen? Like I live in a city where $2,000 a month of rent is a regular thing. And I have my job is at McDonald's. I have to, you know, commute one hour and pay hundreds of, of dollars per month just to even get to my job. How am I going to pay rent and a child and mm -hmm. X amount of expenses all at the same time? Yeah. And then if they do have an abortion, they might feel guilt, right? Um, or if they're even thinking about it, right? I mean, we've all thought about terrible things. So, um, you know, that guilt is a real thing. And sometimes situ context can push, push in on us in a way that we feel out of control or we feel like we have no other choice. And we make the bad choice because like two bad choices. I just I'd made what I thought was the least bad one, you know? Yeah. And so yeah, how do we approach the issue with grace? I think grace needs to precede, ju precede judgment. Otherwise, we risk alienating people unnecessarily. Yeah. I think uh, this kind of comes back to like also access and access to critical skills. Like I haven't even Google searched myself, but if there's a friend of mine that supported somebody to avoid an abortion. There's got to be some organizations in Georgia that are just made for that. Like if I did a Google search for abortion prevention, there's got to be something that comes up. So having an education around that, access to education around that sort of thing is going to yeah. be useful to Yeah, overcome. we may take for granted that one, just how people are thinking about it and whether there's even another option available, yeah. right? They might not um, even that, have that internet to yeah. even find the stuff. So we, um, I mean, if you just think about when I was 12, 15, 18 year old, like there's just so much I didn't know, you know, I just was unaware of. And so that's, that's a reality that's got to be integrated. Yeah. So guilt also may tie into, let's say you perhaps got raped. Yeah. Or if you feel victim, if you've been victimized in some way, um, yeah. like that, or even other ways, just abuse could be physical abuse by your, yeah. so how could you look at that child and be reminded of that every day? Yeah. Right. And also like you might feel guilt to get married, you know, and maybe you shouldn't marry this person, right? Maybe they are right. abusive or they're dangerous or they're toxic in some way, but you feel guilty from a religious standpoint because you're supposed to get married when you have a baby. And right. so you get married when you shouldn't, you know, so that, yeah, that guilt can be a lever for all kinds of bad. One bad decision is like cascading into a bunch of more bad decisions. And yeah. that's where grace I think comes in. Cause it keeps us a stopping kind of stops and go, wait, 
okay, things are messy, but what's the best thing for where we are now going forward? Um, we can't undo what's been done, but we can at least start to make good decisions going forward. Yeah, because being stuck in something like that, um, kind of remorse and sadness and depression is actually uh, against God's will for us. It, that could easily become handcuffs and could tie us into a, a fear state to not do anything at all and um, just let things become worse. Um, so if you're actively going through this, first of all, we grieve with you, we groan with you, uh, but we want to encourage you not to make decisions based on fear make it based on what's going on like in your heart and what do you feel god is telling you um, what is another form of guilt that, that people feel um, perhaps if they actually could die right um, but that's also questionable because i've heard stories of doctors telling people they have 90 percent chance of dying and everything turns out fine so yeah, I think, well, in that case, I don't know if that would be guilt. That'd probably be more fear because guilt is usually in retrospect. Like you're looking back at something oh, you yeah. did or didn't do um, versus something that in the f future, I think would be more fear, um, fear of guilt, um, of potential guilt. Um, but guilt is usually, yeah, it's, I think when you think it's like relationally the, the wrong person, you know, maybe it's sexual relationships outside of marriage you might feel guilty about not having a child without being married you might feel guilty about um having considering an abortion you might feel guilty about having an abortion you might feel guilty about um someone might have not have an abortion and might feel guilty about about it because of pressure from people like from parents or friends or mentors or the father or maybe the 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 father is pushing for the abortion and the mother um doesn't want it and she feels yeah. guilty about not doing what he's asking. Um, Might feel guilty about putting him in the river, like the penguin from Batman. So, yeah, just try try to avoid leaving him in the river. That's that's one. <laughs> um, way to yeah, I mean, that. if you if I mean, yeah, we've we've uh, maybe lying about things might be another reason for like the guilt can kind of spiral into to other things yeah so um but ultimately i think that's again another opportunity where we we as a as a friend as a family as a community as a society need to move heaven and earth to fill fill in those gaps and that's grace right hey you don't deserve you may not deserve this but um we're gonna step in and fill the gap so yeah and that's where oh, I, I would love to something. see that men mindset more prominent is, hey, we're going to we're going to solve the problem. We're going to fill the gap. We have an imagination to do that. We're going to come up with ways yeah. to do it. And we're not going to come up with excuses or condemnation. We're just going to go in and fix things. And that's the entrepreneurial spirit. So I think we should embrace that more so in the uh, in solving some of these problems. Yeah. Put some feet to those prayers. Yeah. Um, and if you need help, go get a good resource for that too. find those resources. They're out there. Um, I will tie back into something you said before, which is uh, picketing outside of an abortion clinic is not the way because that's essentially like hatred and people aren't motivated by hatred. So if you feel guilt about that sort of thing, like I want to just remind you, 
those sorts of people are not actual true Christians. There's something else that they're posing as Christians. Even people that picket against gay people, like the Westboro Baptist Church, they're not actual Christians. That is not the reason God came. He came to love and love hard. Um, yeah. When Jesus talked to people, even in the midst of their sin, he would not even just directly tell them all the time. He would just say, you know, I'm, I've healed you. If you want to keep doing this, that's on you and the consequences of, of whatever you want to continue doing. Um, he didn't have a picket and say, hey, sinners, you're doing bad. Therefore, you should fix yourselves. He, none of that is of Jesus. Yeah. Now, I will say there are some people that will. They will go to those lines to to love on the people that are going into the facilities. So I think those people are um, embracing that. Um, but there are also a lot of people that they're looking for that dopamine rush of, hey, I w I'm against abortion. I went to the line, I had my sign, um, I feel good because I was against it and I told them I was against it. But they shouldn't feel good because unless it actually affected change in a positive way, they shouldn't feel good about themselves. So that's the kind of my root issue is like, I wanna actually bring life and be pro-life and not just how I feel or the things that I say or the things, I, I want the things I say and do to actually impact um, and, and foster flourishing in life. Um, and if they don't, then I'm not, I don't want to feel good about myself until, until that, until that happens. So, mm -hmm. and that's just a, that whether it's the right or the left, that's our society as a whole right now, there's a lot of sort of virtual sig virtue signaling. Hey, I'm, I'm good. Cause I'm for this or against that, you know, and they do us, you know, we do a social media post to kind of present ourselves as sort of morally superior. Um, and we get that dopamine rush, but then we we um, really don't care about the issue being solved because we're not doing things to to make it to to solve it. Um, and so I'm my challenge is that we would evaluate what we're doing and whether it has the effect in a real tangible way, in a measurable way. And if it is, then continue to do those things and do less of the things that are designed to make us feel better about ourselves and to alleviate our own guilt. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of want to backtrack a little bit saying those folks are not true, true, true Christians. Maybe they're just kind of earlier in, the, in their faith uh, because I myself, I think even yesterday was castigating somebody in a not so loving way because I was mm. passionate about a topic. Um, it was not very effective, particularly because I was kind of passionate about it. But yeah. nevertheless, I'm going to try my best to be yeah, uh, uh, and approaching a different way in the future. Yeah, um, because uh, I guess if you're doing the picketing, maybe try a different way. <laughs> I'll, I'll or ask why you're doing it, how you're doing it, those types of things, um, and what yeah. the effect is, and is the effect um, positive? Yeah, uh, I mean, God can certainly it. use even even problematic methods. He does and will use them, um, but ultimately, mm -hmm. we can be wise and strategic in our approaches too. Yeah. All right. We before we get into escape, let's check back into Ross, who is drawing a Twitter sign apparently. Hey guys, what's up? <laughs> uh, Hello. That was a good uh, definition of virtue signaling. I had forgotten what that was. People saying on social media, "Am I really? Uh, look how good I am." But I think that's what uh, 
a lot of this comes down to is our heart really to change the topic or are we just positioning ourselves so that we feel good? And again, that comes back to um, that whole, is it about our own pleasure and convenience? Because that's what we're doing. If we're um, doing some of these actions out of the wrong heart, because it's um, just doing it to please ourselves. But if we are going back to that original ethic of, am I doing this to be generous to my neighbor? Um, that's what we have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. For sure, brother. It's looking good. All right. Let's jump back into escape the last segment. So um, if you wanted to escape, I guess, physically, you could move to a different state for an abortion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I, th- I think of abortion, you know, as, as an escape. Um, it's usually a choice, um, often as a way to kind of alleviate the pressures that are, are apparent, but I think it also can mask the root problems, which then can't be solved because, um, because essentially they're solved by getting rid of the child and by having the child it surfaces the problems. Um, now if you're in a situation, you know, I can imagine being in a situation where, or a context where the, the problems are surfaced and then they're just continued to be neglected. And that's where despair can come in. And that's a hard one to, to navigate as well. Yeah. For me, I, um, was thinking in my head initially that, like I mentioned in the first point, if, if crime is going to increase and we're going to kill more people by people being raised to become serial killers, then why is abortion not viable? Right. But, uh, when I had deeper conversations, I kind of had a more different perspective on it of like, well, actually crime could be addressed, uh, ways to reconcile people could be addressed through therapy. And I literally even asked a friend of mine, kind of a bold question of like, well, if this Roe v. Wade correlation statistic is true, would you be totally fine with this anti-abortion precedent? Meaning that you're essentially, your home is not safe. You know, crime will be rampant. Uh, you're essentially, your family would not be safe. And he surprisingly said, yes, I'll deal with it at that point. And that was kind of eye opening for me because I was like, why not avoid the issue entirely? But <laughs> Uh, well, that there is an interesting deterministic lay, lay, layer to that because one, we're kind of acting like soothsayers saying we know the future when we don't. Um, yeah. And we're being so determined about it that it's inevitable, right? And so um, we're not leaving ourselves open to the possibilities, which kind of goes back to the imagination thing. We fail, we have a failure of imagination um, of those possibilities. And so, you know, those are a couple of things that came to mind. Um, but it also, it's like, again, back to the justification thing, it's like, it could also be that. We could also just be justifying something, giving ourselves cover for, so we don't feel guilty. Um, mm-hmm. And both the individual and maybe the society should feel some of the guilt so that it drives and motivates change um, as long as it's, you know, in a healthy way versus in a, um, a manipulative way. Right. All right, let me see. To escape from this topic, 
my final suggestion is if you are actively or in the past suffered the groaning, grieving of this topic deeply, just bring it to Jesus. I'm not saying you did anything wrong or you need to correct yourself. I'm just saying let it out of your system by claiming your grief to him, transferring it to him because he can handle it, thereby increasing your ability not to be withered down, deteriorated as a person by it. Uh, Jason, what are your kind of final thoughts on this? Yeah, I'd like to, well, I definitely affirm what you said. And I think if uh, we realize one, we're not alone. Christ is with us. Even when we feel alone, he is there. Um, and, and people want to help too. So I think it's not just a spiritual layer, but I think people want to help. Um, they're, they're there. We are there. Um, and if, if you don't have that, then that's something that I would encourage you to, to seek out through a church, through your community, through your neighbors, through a friend to extend that hand, that hand that says, Hey, I need help. Um, and the other thing I would I would want to throw put it, put into the conversation is this idea of reductionism, and uh, this kind of goes to the justification piece. But um, reductionism is uh, I'll quote from this this article on uh, the Velcro Tabernacle. Um, <laughs> reductionism attempts to reduce the whole into constituent elements due to the assumptions of a closed system and alienate it from end goals, and therefore preclude from examination other variables which may be a factor. So what does that mean? That means, you know, this isn't a baby. They're just a clump of cells, right? Reductionism is to sort of take the person and just split them into their pieces to a level that it makes it fine to get rid of it, right? It's just a clump of cells, so we'll get rid of it. That's reductionism. Mm. And so reductionism is a way that humans um, explain things so that they can be more comfortable with uncomfortable things. And so it makes, and that's often what happens in genocides is they start to talk to talk about them as animals and dogs and vermin, particularly with the Jews and the, and the Germans. So I, I think we have to be careful about this reductionistic language. Um, it can, you know, when you're thinking of something scientifically, there is a point of reducing things to its parts. You can understand it, but the purpose is to understand it and to make sense of it. It's not to reduce it. So it makes uh, my action tolerable. And so um, I think reductionism is something that gets uh, is a uh, gets integrated into a lot of the conversations, um, but it loses the personhood and it kind of goes back to, you know, what what is uh, is a person worthwhile? Are they a value? And where does that value come? Is it based on whether they are wanted or does it come from a transcendent layer? Um, and so I think going back to that, is there a transcendent plan? Is there a transcendent God? Is there a transcendent morality? Um, or is it just me? Is it me, the individual that gets to determine what is right or wrong? Um, and then if there is a transcendent, am I actively aligning myself with God and his, his ethics in my life and in this issue and society? And how am I contributing to the problem of abortion? And how am I contributing to the solutions? And am I moving more towards solutions contributions and less so and um, away from problem contributions, um, or am I doing the opposite? And where in my life can I make those changes um, to alter that trajectory? Does that make sense? Yep. Basically, jump some, jump into some critical sk uh, yeah. thinking skills to really assess what's going on. 
Yeah, and the last, the thing I would also add is, I think we should have gracious relentlessness. And we should be making incremental progress towards the end game, caring about the lives and not the legalities, the actions and behavior and not the pro the public proclamations. Hmm. You know, what just popped in my head was one of the requirements of, um, I guess, the end times is actually, I think, filling up the earth with people. And so... so I mean, in I Genesis, just, it does say, go and populate the world. And um, and God, when the Tower of Babel happened, God, he, uh, he confused them so that they would spread out and start moving around the world and populating it. So that's something that I think is really important to God is, you know, I think of the Trinity is a community of God and three in one. It's a community. And out of that community of love came humanity. Humanity is an expression of God's love. And I think God wants a really big family. And um, we all get to play a part in that. Yeah. And so if we're... Well, I'll just leave it at that. That was a good way to end that. Uh, Ross, did you have any final thoughts? Um. You know, I think just the same as before, what is the ethic that we are prescribing to one of um, of convenience or personal convenience or of a of a greater ethic um, that's established outside of our convenience? Um, but then um, what do we do about it? How do we act on it now that we've um, seen what we should do from this outside ethic that's bigger than our own um, convenience and pleasure? How do we change our lives and make progress towards the people around us, the people who carry guilt, and the ones who are maybe throwing guilt? And um, what is our action steps in regard to, or will we be obedient to this, this higher ethic? Amen, brother. If you feel like we uh, need to make this more of a community conversation, we're open to that. If you know of any experts on both sides of the equation who want to speak to this on maybe a subsequent episode, uh, just throw it in the comments. Uh, I'll reach out to you and we can make this more of a community uh, conversation uh, because again, this, is, this conversation is more about uh, adding perspective, not limiting and making people feel guilty about their perspective. Uh, we operate with love first and foremost. And if you didn't feel that way, uh, we apologize in anything we said today. Uh, we absolutely love you and know that you're gonna be the best version of yourself if you're not already that person. Um, this has been another episode of From Pain to Gain. Thanks for joining us. We love you, have a blessed day. Cut.